before we get to the text. There's this great sermon by Barbara Brown Taylor in a book entitled Home by Another Way on Amos. And uh, I just want to give credit to that work because I've used some of her structure of that sermon and some of her words, though we kind of go different directions. And I just want to give credit where credit is due uh, right now rather than just naming her name 20 times as I preach. All right, today we come to Amos. I'm going to read uh, some of chapter 6 and some of chapter 8. There are Bibles in front of you that look like this. You may take this home. Um, it's our gift to you. You can have, have this. Um, the words I'll be reading are start on page 738 in chapter 6. I'm going to read the first seven verses. And then we'll move over to chapter 8 and starting uh, with verse 4. What sorrow awaits you who lounge in luxury in Jerusalem? Something just struck me here. Hold on, I'm sorry. Why did they say Jerusalem? I don't know. It says Zion. Okay. That's for another sermon for another day. What sorrow awaits you who lounge in luxury in Jerusalem and you who feel secure in Samaria? You who are famous and popular in Israel, and people go to you for help. But go over to Kalneh and see what happened there, and then go to the city of Hamat and go to the Philistine city of Gath. You're no better than they were, and look how they were destroyed. You push, every, you push away every thought of coming disaster, and your actions only bring the day of judgment closer. How terrible it is for you who sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on your couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and of choice calves fattened in the stall. You sing these trivial songs to the sound of the harp and fancy yourselves to be great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions. You care nothing about the ruin of your people. Therefore, you will be first to be led away as captives. Suddenly, your parties will end. Moving into chapter 8, verse 4. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so that you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and you cheat the buyer with dishonest scales and you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. And then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or for a pair of sandals. And now the Lord has sworn this oath by his own name, the pride of Israel. I will not forget the wicked things you have done and the earth will tremble For your deeds and everyone will mourn. The ground will rise like the Nile River at flood time that will heave up and then sink again. In the ancient world, this is language of um, military invasion. In that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. Again, military invasion. I will turn your celebrations into times of mourning and your singing into weeping and You will wear funeral clothes and shave your heads to show your sorrow as if 
your only son had died and how very bitter it will be in that day. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. This may be the worst punishment of all. Not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from border to border, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. May God bless the reading of God's word, and would you pray with me? God, please, uh, by your Spirit, speak to our hearts and uh, purify us, your people, those who love Jesus and who want to honor him. Use these words I speak as you see fit. Amen. Uh, According to a very unscientific poll that I've been conducting over the past four weeks, Amos is no one's idea of a fun time. Hear this, you who trample the poor. I will bring darkness at noonday, darkness at daytime. I will bring famine and judgment. I will not forget your deeds. The land will tremble and mourn. They shall fall, never to rise again. Who invited this guy to the party? (laughs) This message of anger and judgment, isn't this the anger and the judgment image that many American churches today try to convince us does not exist, and yet there it is. I mean, God doesn't judge, right? Why is Amos in such a bad mood? Uh, And it makes me wonder, before we push the anger or judgment of God off, maybe we should humbly listen and see what God is angry about. But why is Amos in such a bad mood Amos is in a bad mood because in Amos' day, the rich used their riches to burden people who could never work their way out of their debt. Sound familiar? Amos is in a bad mood because clever people would use deceit and fine print to trap people who could not think as fast. And now they're caught, but hey, it's legal. Amos is in a bad mood because making a profit and improving the economy was more important than anything else in the land. More important than justice, more important than Sabbath, more important than God. Amos preached almost 2,800 years ago. That's a long time ago. Amos preached halfway around the world in northern Israel. That's far away. But see if some of this doesn't sound familiar. The nation in Amos' day had experienced about 40-plus years of peace and prosperity. The major foreign threat to Israel, Assyria, at this time, was dealing with troubles of its own. And so this allowed Israel to bolster its military, strengthen those in power, and grow its economy significantly. This was the height of of their greatness. In our Bibles, King David gets most of the press when it comes to ancient Israel kings and Judea kings. But the other historical record, there's no mention of David. Isn't that strange? There's like one mention of the house of David in in an archaeological site. It's very weird. Who gets all the, uh, the press outside of the Bible in history? Well, it's all the kings during Amos' day in the north. 
They're considered the great kings by the other nations. This was the height of their power. These things in Amos' day were understood as God's favor, especially among the religious. Did you hear what Amos said back there in chapter 6 when I was reading it? You are not grieved by the ruin of your people. Did you catch that? It doesn't seem to bother you, Amos is saying, that things are deteriorating. Did you hear that part? What's deteriorating? Nothing's been better. The military is big and strong. The king is strong. We enjoy the culture of music and fine wine. We have the respect of the nations around us. We are important. Amos, what has you so hot and bothered? Do you not see our greatness? But something else was happening in Amos' day. Economic disparity. Some had homes and summer homes and winter homes, and others had no homes at all. Some dined daily on veal, medallions, and fine merlot, and they slept in ivory beds, and others woke up on the floor and made pancakes with wheat supplemented with chaff. There was great alienation, a great divide between the haves and the have-nots. It's impossible to miss if you read Amos. Israel had forgotten that they were called to be a brotherhood. But there was disparity, and despite this disparity, there was all kinds of talk in the big houses about thanking God for the nation's blessings and welcoming the day of the Lord at a time when so many people were living in hell. Amos is in a bad mood because the health of the market had become more important than the health of the people. And God would not stand it anymore. And so God decides to send grumpy old Amos to start shouting about it. My guess is the way Amos preached these words is not the way I read them. God sends him up there to get all sour and start ruining all that fun. It's time to expose the sickness of the system. It's time to smash the idol of extreme materialism a materialism that was more than out of control. People were suffering. Was God angry about that? Was God going to do something about that? Yes. We've been trained, and I include myself in this, we've been conditioned to read passages like, uh, like these ones as like personal indictments, right? As though Amos were in our kitchens poking you and me from across the table. I think it's very important for us to remember that Amos had a much broader scope than that. Amos is poking the chest of an entire people on God's behalf. He's after the entire economic system of a nation, a system that had made God sick. It must be remembered that the message of Amos was written to a people 2,800 years ago, halfway around the world. Yet, I also think that God has put these words down for us too. And what Amos does, like so many prophets after him, is he draws a straight line between the economics of God's people and the heart of God. In other words, or put another way, extreme materialism 
is a dangerous threat to a people's ability to love their neighbor. The prophets drew a line from possessions to love for neighbor, and so did Jesus. When the, when the rich young ruler, remember that guy, uh, asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus, what must I do? Jesus does something interesting. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, do not steal, do not testify falsely, honor your father and mother. Five things. Our kids studied this passage on Wednesday. It was great hearing their insights. It has been noted that each of these commands that Jesus gives come from the Ten Commandments. Maybe you caught that. But what's interesting here is that Jesus does not quote any of the commandments that have to do between a person and God. He doesn't say, no gods but God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't say, no graven images. He doesn't say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. He doesn't say, you know, make sure you honor the Sabbath, those first four about a person and God, or between a person and God. No, Jesus quotes five commands that have everything to do with a person loving their neighbor. Mark even slips in there, because this occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark even slips in there, and love your neighbor. You may recall, I'm going somewhere with this, I'm kind of building this. Okay. You may recall that upon hearing this man's um, upon hearing this, what Jesus said, the man says, well, of course, I've, I've done all these things since I was a boy. To which Jesus replies, there's one more thing. Okay, time for some math. So Jesus just skips over the first four, and then he mentions five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's one more commandment in the ten, isn't there? You remember what it is? The last one. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Do not pine after what is not yours. Because if you do, you're going to take it and you're going to hoard it. You may even convince yourself that it's yours. And I think what Jesus might be saying here, I do, is he saying to this man, you have a covetous heart. It is time for you to rectify this. It is time that you take what is not yours and you give it to those who it belongs to. Take everything you have, sell it, give money to the poor, and come follow me. And the man can't do it. He can't do it. It's sad. And he walks away. And what Jesus is asking, it's impossible, right? It's impossible. To give so much stuff away? I mean, it never happens. It's impossible. The disciples even say this. Except for that it's not impossible. It isn't. In Luke's gospel, the man walks away. It's sad. And about 15 verses later, about 15 verses, there's a story in there about Jesus taking a blind man and giving him sight. And then who do we run across up in a tree? Zacchaeus. I know I talk about Zacchaeus a lot. He's like one of my heroes. 
Zacchaeus is up in that tree and Jesus walks by. Zacchaeus, I'm coming over for lunch. Make sure there's something chocolatey. Jesus swings by. People are angry about it because Zacchaeus is rich. He's a thief. He's lived a life of extreme materialism. Only now Jesus has a hold of the man's heart. Do not covet. Do not be covetous, Zacchaeus. Give it back. Give it away. Impossible? Not with God. What does Zacchaeus do? He gives back everything he took, times four. He sells half his stuff. It's not his. It's his neighbor's. And so what does Jesus, our great prophet, say in response to this? Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. For this man, Zacchaeus, has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. I think the answer to extreme materialism is extreme love. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the people in our lives like Zacchaeus who demonstrate for us what it's like to have a heart totally captured by Jesus. They give themselves. And it's such a reminder, God, that you are working that nothing is impossible with you. I'm encouraged by so many faces I get to look at every Sunday in this, in this church who live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray you give an encouragement to us today that you're working in our lives to make us more like you, the one who gave up his life for his friends. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.